Uh, open your Bibles this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, for our visitors, we'd just like to tell you we've been working our way through uh, the Corinthian letters, um, and we're continuing in our study. And if you recall, those who are regulars, we started in the Corinthian letters for, for, a, for a specific reason. Uh, there was a couple of questions that were being asked a lot, specifically about our position on women in ministry, why we have women Pastor Joyce and others up here saying things, leading things, even preaching on occasional. And then the whole question of, of husband and wife relationships, how the New Testament addresses those things. And rather than like go through the New Testament and pick a bunch of verses out and try to do it that way, uh, I thought it'd be best to take a book of Scripture that specifically addresses those issues and work our way through that book. And then when we come to the issues, then we'll talk about them. Because by doing it that way, we talk about it in the flow of the text as it was intended. And we're there. We're going to talk about some of those issues this morning. So we're in 1 Corinthians 11, and as we read through the text this morning, um, I think you'll recognize where we're at. And again, I ask you to be a little patient with me, but my voice, I'm still recovering from a sore throat, so if I'm not as clear as I should be, please extend um, me a little grace. Okay. So, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in the first verse, Paul writes, uh, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and, the head, and man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same with her whose head is shaved. For a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it's disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man not to, ought to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed man was not created for woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it's glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practices, nor have the churches of God. Father, we thank you for your word, Father. Lord, we come this morning to a passage which, um, to our eyes as we read it, is very complex, in many ways is confusing. Father, raises so many questions in our mind and, and speaks, Father, to our lives in a way that causes us, Lord, to pause for a moment. So we just pray for your guidance, Father, the guidance of your spirit in what is said, what is heard, as we even process it in our minds, Lord, that we might hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a whole lot going on in this passage. There's way more questions than we can answer and some stuff that really sounds strange to us. Here's the good news. We get to the bottom line, it's really simple. The truth of this passage, when we get through it and we get to the question of what it says to us, is going to be really simple. And this passage is a really good example of why it is so important to take the time 
to set the context. And I mean by the place in the letter, the place in the culture, the place in the history. It's really going to help us understand exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about because there's a whole lot of spiritual cultural stuff you know going on the context is so critical it's just loaded with that so as we look at this portion of scripture what we want to do um is first of all identify some of the key terms there's some really big words in this passage and then also at the same time try to recognize the assumptions that we bring to the passage because we bring a lens to everything that we read. We bring assumptions. And that influences especially how we see those big words we're going to talk about. And then, of course, there's cultural issues. We want to look at that. Now, we're going to look at those first three things, the key words, the assumptions, the cultural issues, kind of together at the same time as we make our way through the text. And then lastly, we'll ask the question, exactly what is Paul trying to say? First of the Corinthians, and then what is God trying to say to us. So, so first, the key words are assumptions and all that cultural, historical stuff. Verses 1 and 2 are a real clear transition. We've had three chapters of talking about meat sacrifice to idols. Probably done talking about meat sacrifice to idols, ready to move on, and Paul is. So he makes this very clear transitional statement. Be imitators of me, just I also am of Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I deliver them to you. The fact that it's transitional shouldn't cause us to miss something very important that's here. Really big word, traditions, right? Big word, right? The fan of fiddler on the roof, you know how big of a word that is, right? Yeah, traditions, right? Um, when Jesus uses the word, it's almost always negative, right? He's talking to the religious leaders, and he talks about how easily they set aside the commandments for the, for the purpose of their traditions, or how easily they neglect the law of God for the purpose of their traditions. I can't think of a single place, I may have missed one, where Jesus uses the word positively, right? Uh, Paul is kind of in that same vein, normally. Um, he talks about uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. A little bit different perspective. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy, empty deception, according to the tradition of men, right? So Jesus talks about the tradition of the elders, generally speaking, in a pretty critical way. Paul talks about the traditions of men. But then in 2 Thessalonians, Paul says this, this is 2.15, so then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or mouth or letter from us. So I guess traditions aren't inherently bad. The word just means something that's passed on. That's all it means. It all depends on what's passed on. Is it good or is it bad? And in the case of what Paul had, had passed on in, in Thessaly, it was good. He passed on some good stuff. And what the word represents, as Paul, as Paul is using it, is, you know, we have universal truths. There are universal doctrines. And as Paul had been in Thessaly, or as he had been in Corinth, he had passed it on in the fashion that most fit their setting. So when Paul makes this reference in these first two verses to the traditions they held fast to, he's talking specifically about the things he had given to them in the Corinthian church. He's starting to narrow the focus to specifically what has been said and what is happening in Corinth, which causes us to, again, get a little bit of clarity there as we step in and begin to look at the key words. First big key word, and it's the one that will occupy most of our time, is the word head, right? Kefali is the word. It comes into English in various medical terms. Kefali. It's used a lot. It's used 13 times in eight verses. I mean, it's an important word. 
and that's if I counted right. Okay? Now, kephali, what does it mean, right? It, it's English use, pretty much parallels the, the Greek use. Uh, it can literally mean this thing, right? The box on top of our shoulders keeps our brain in, right? It can mean our physical head. Or it can be used symbolically or figuratively, right? And the symbolic figurative uses in Greek pretty much parallel English. We can talk about the head in an authoritative fashion. We talk about the head of a corporation or the head of a committee. When we use it like that, we're talking about the head, and it follows the physical head, if you think about it, as the, as the administrator, the one where decisions are made, and then everything else works those decisions out. So that kind of a, a figure of speech makes sense. It works so well, we can often forget that it is, in fact, a figure of speech. Somebody is the head of a corporation. That doesn't mean they're the physical you know, brain. No, it just means they make the decisions, right? So that's one very common usage, right? Um, the other usage that we use in English, not as often, but it's definitely a usage, is the idea of a, um, of a source or an origin. Like we refer to the head of a river. If you have a spring that comes out of the rocks, and the, that's the head of the river. Or if you have a bunch of rivulets that come together, we call that the headwaters. So it's used um, as a source. So which one is it? Well, actually, before we even do that, we should kind of go through the list and figure out which one of Paul's usages are literal and which are you know, symbolic. So verse 3, which is the big one, that's the one that we start with. He says, I want you to remember that Christ is the head of every man. Safe to say that's not literal. This is not Jesus sitting on my shoulders. It's me, okay? That's literal. And man is the head of woman. Same thing. Symbolic, metaphorical. It's not literal, right? And God is the head of Christ. Metaphorical, that's symbolic. So verse 3 is where most of the symbolic uses are, right? You go down to uh, verse 4, every man who has something on his head while praying, that's probably literal, talking about his head, right? Um, verse 5, everyone who has her head uncovered while praying, literal, uh, goes on to say, disgraces her head, probably literal, theoretically could be, you know, figure of speech. Uh, one and the same whose head is shaved, that's clearly literal, right? Um, verse 6, woman does not cover her head, physical, let her hair be cut off, have her hair cut off, let her head be shaved, literal, and cover her head, probably literal, right? Um, verse 7, man ought not to have his head covered, literal, since he's the image and glory of God, one glory of man. Um, and then read farther on down, I don't want to skip any, we come down to, I should look at my notes, verse 10, probably literal, woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, that's probably literal, physical, and then verse 13, it's implied and it's literal. So the vast majority of them are literal, those are easy to deal with, right? It's the symbolic ones that throw us off. Right? Actually, that third verse. You get the third verse right, everything else is easy after that. Look at the third verse. I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of woman. Christ, or God is the head of Christ. Clearly not physical. It's got to be metaphorical or symbolic. Which one of the two is it? Is it an authoritative head or the source of something? The Western church has, for at least a thousand years, been pretty well universally agreed that it's an authority model. Why is that? That's why we talk about our assumptions and our perspectives. In the Western church, we generally have a legal authority model in mind when we approach Scripture. Think about the way salvation was explained to you when you first got saved. Generally speaking, it goes something like this. I sinned. I broke God's law. 
The penalty for that is spiritual death, eternal separation from him. Jesus paid the price for my sin. Right? He paid the price for my crime. Now God forgives me and I enter into reno renewed, restored relationship with him. All of that is true. But it also, if that's the only way we view salvation, gives us a very closed lens. Because that isn't the only way scripture talks about salvation. Think about the parables that Jesus used talking about himself in bringing salvation to mind. Many of them have, there's no authority anywhere in them. Think about the parable of the lost sheep. One little sheep goes wandering off and the shepherd goes off to, to, to find him. What does that have to do with authority? Nothing. Right? He's going after the sheep because he cares for the sheep. It's a relational statement. The prodigal son. The father doesn't send the cops after his son. He waits for his son to return. It's relational. So while there obviously is a, a legal administrative or authoritative way to look at salvation, there's also a completely different way to look at it that is more relational. We have to hold both of those. So why then do we bring an administrative model to the Corinthian passage when frankly there's no reason in the passage to do it? If you look through the passage, it's not till you get all the way down to verse 10 that the word authority even occurs and that's talking about the authority of the woman. We'll talk about that when we get to verse 10. Typically what happens, and I know some of you have seen the diagram, this is presented from a Western model where you have the woman and the head of the woman is the man and the head of the man is Christ and the head of Christ is God. I won't ask for a showing of hands. I know some of you have seen that. And we present it that way, right? There's nothing in this passage that assumes that. We bring that understanding from our Western legalistic mind, right? And, and here's kind of the proof of that. If I were to put that, that diagram up, I can't bring myself to do it. If I were to put that diagram up and I had woman and the head of woman is man and the head of man is Christ, the head of Christ is God, where would all of you be looking on that diagram? You'd be looking at the relationship between the woman and the man and Christ. And you wouldn't give much of a second thought to the top of the diagram, right? Right? Christ and then God. You wouldn't give much thought to that, right? That hasn't always been the case. Right? When this first was suggested, remember I said last week with regards to communion, how the church has changed drastically in the issues that are important to us? How nowadays we look at communion and we argue, okay, is Jesus in the elements or is he with the elements or are the elements symbolic of his presence? And we get animated over that kind of discussion, right? The early church fathers, they had way bigger fish to fry. They had much bigger concerns than that. What was their first question? What was the big question that the early church fathers for four centuries struggled with? Who is Jesus? Who is this one we call the Christ? Exactly who is he? You see, we can say... Oh yeah, we believe that, that Jesus was, is, is fully man and fully God and always has been that way and always will be that way and I can't understand it, but I accept it. And that rolls off our tongues easily, right? We're comfortable with that. Don't understand it fully, probably can't explain it, but we believe it. Not so in the first four centuries. They were struggling with that issue mightily. It wasn't until we get into the fourth and fifth century that they really become, they can clearly say with confidence, fully God, fully man, always has been, always will be. He's in fact divine. 
took some time to figure that out. As a result of that, in the early centuries, it didn't matter what subject was being discussed. You could be talking about, you be talking about what day of the week you want to worship on. How was the what was the first lens they looked through in answering that question? How does that speak to the identity of Christ? Oh, we're going to worship on Sunday. Because that was the day Jesus was resurrected. So every question, large and small, was seen first through that lens. How does it speak to our understanding of the relationship of the Father and the Son? So on those rare occasions, again, they didn't talk about it much because they had bigger fish to fry. On those rare occasions when they said, gee, the, the thing with you know, the woman and the man and Christ and God, and that's an authority model, their eyes didn't go to the bottom three their eyes went to the top, too, that father-son part of the diagram. And how did they react? Have you lost your mind? Do you have any idea what you are saying? When you put the son in an authoritatively subordinate position to the father, what kind of Christological, that means doctrines about Jesus, what kind of Christological statement have you just made about the son? You have reduced his deity, and there's no way around it. One of the earliest fathers in the early church, and by fathers we just mean the old guys that talked about this stuff, the earliest, earliest church leaders that addressed this, he answered that question this way. Is that how this arrangement is supposed to be seen? Chrysostomo said, and I quote, who would think such a thing? It was so revulsive to their understanding of the person of Christ. I would suggest, if you want to bring an authority model into this, Christian, into this Corinthians passage, you, you know, the words of Ricky Ricardo, you've got a lot of explaining to do. How about the other model? The origin model. Well, look at the text itself. Look at where the text goes, right? Look at verse, um, check my notes, I'm lost. Uh, look at verses 8 and 9. For man does not originate from woman, but woman for man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man. Look down at verse 11. However, in the Lord, neither is man independent of, rather, either is woman independent of man, nor man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Now, if you have footnotes, you'll notice that in that last verse, the word originate actually is, has its very being. It's the verb of being, right? So all of us have our being originating out of, well, first of all, our mothers. If you're a guy, you want to keep that in mind, right? If you're a woman, all, all human life originated from Adam, and then all of that originated from God. He's talking about origins through the whole passage. So it makes a whole lot more sense to see the metaphorical explanations in verse 3, not as authoritative, but as relational and creative. Paul is stressing in the Corinthian situation, we've got to be mindful of that, he's speaking to a situation that you all need to remember where you're from. You ever, ever, ever had that? Ever have those discussions around your dinner table where things have kind of gotten animated to the point and somebody's like getting way out of line and somebody else has to say, what family were you raised in? Remember where you're from. Remember where you're from. Remember the source from which you came. That should be dictating something of your behavior. That's where Paul's going with this, right? So when he says head, 
Sometimes he's talking. Oh, but by the way, I should note that um, it, it has been written, and because I know some of you guys read this stuff and you do your own research, and that's phenomenal. It has been written. There's some stuff out there circulating in, and unfortunately, you know, otherwise good sources, that there's nowhere in ancient Greek that the word kephali, the word head, was ever used as source. Uh, it came out of a doctoral dissertation done 10, 20 years ago. It's been picked up and repeated, and a lot of you know, really respectable uh, writers have used it. Uh, it's just wrong, period. Um, Otto Kern published a work in 1922 um, detailing what are called the Orphic Fragments. And all it is is just a collection of a whole lot of little tiny quotes and fragments of things from old, old, ancient, like pre-Homeric Greek that had been quoted and stuff and circulated, and it's all old stuff. Well, there are numerous examples in the Orphic fragments that talk about Kefali head as being an origin or a source. So it's there. I mean, the language, language does do that. So I strongly, strongly would argue, at least, that Paul's talking about relational stuff, right? Now, the next word, next word, that was head. The next word, uh, it'll be a little quicker on this one, um, is the word hair or covering. Hair's a big deal in this chapter, right? Which is unique. It's, it's not a big deal in the rest of the New Testament. I mean, we have some comments by Jesus where he talks about, you know, don't take an oath on your head because you can't make one hair, you know, gray or, or black or white or gray, whatever they call it, I forget now. Th that's it. And that's like not a big deal, right? Or he talks about, you know, don't worry, little flock, not one hair of your head will fall. You know, the Father's looking out for you. So it's, it's referred to, but never in a direct way until we get here. And here it's a huge deal, right? But the really interesting thing about hair as it's used here, the reference to hair as a covering or long hair, are the words Paul uses. Because the word he uses for hair isn't the normal word for hair, right? The normal word for hair, like when Jesus referred to the color of our hair or hair falling out, that word was trix. Trix. Very common word in the Greek, Old Greek language for, for hair. Now, it's fallen out of use now. Now it's been replaced by maga. But same kind of word. It just means this stuff, right? Paul doesn't use that word. Paul uses the word komi or komeo if he's talking about the verb, right? And when it says long hair in the verse, the word long is not there. There's a word for long. Paul could have said long if he wanted to. But he doesn't say long thricks. He says komi, right? Or actually he uses the verb to have hair, quite literally. I'll explain that when we get to it. So, so what's the difference between thricks, which is very common, which Jesus used it, and call me this word that Paul uses, right? Well, the best way to understand it, I think, is to go back to that Nazarite vow passage, right? Back in number six. You can turn there if you'd like, or I'll read it. And remember what I said, how they took the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek in the Septuagint, and that became a really good reference source for us because it helps us understand how the Greek words were intended, right? So in that numbers passage, Paul says, or not Paul, um, the law says this, all the days of his vow, speaking of the Nazarite vow, all the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall pass over his head. He shall be holy until the days are fulfilled for which he shall be separated to the Lord. He shall let the locks of his hair on his head grow long. He shall let the locks of his hair grow long. When they translated that passage into Greek, the word hair was trix but the word locks, komi. So it means hair in the sense, you know, like you see the Hasidic Jews and they got the thing going on there like this? It's talking about hair that has been specially or fastidiously arranged, right? 
Now, I've made the comment before. I can illustrate that. I've made the comment before that a lot of times when the old words go out of the language, they stay in the language in compounds. I've talked about this before. Like the word artos, best example. Artos is bread in the New Testament, right? If you walk into a grocery store and you ask for artos, they're going to look at you funny because they don't use that word anymore. They use the word somi. So you walk in the grocery store, you ask for somi. That's the word for bread. But if you ask for artos, they will know what you're talking about. Because where did the artos come from? Or where did the somi, bread, come from? It came from the artopoio, the baker, the maker of bread. The old word stays in the compound. And that's very common in the language, right? So, like I said, in modern Greek, the word trix has gone away. It's been replaced by malia, komistole. And it's fascinating the way it is. So I, let me just, I guess maybe like dramatize it a little bit. I can't say this actually happened, but I'm not sure it didn't either, right? Um, I don't always pay a lot of attention to my hair, right? I'm guilty of that. And so I can't say that the time never came where as I was walking out of the door, one of my children, you can pick any one of them, wouldn't have said something like, Ella babas, come on, Dad. Tamalyasu, inetreli. Your hair is crazy. Go fix it. Nafiaxte, right? Where would they send me? Komitria, the hairstylist. So even though the words have passed out, in the compounds, the word komi is still there if you're going to have your hair fixed. I mean, like, really, they're nice, right? That's not just a barber. I would go to the barber. But a hairstylist, komitria. So that word, the word for hair, as Paul uses it here and here only, speaks of hair that has been especially well done, right? Now, you apply that idea to the text. What is Paul saying in the text? And let me, let me remind you, Paul's talking about the Corinthian situation. You cannot generalize it automatically and bring it into our situation. That might not be the case because Corinth is unique. We'll talk a little more about that. What Paul is saying is, in Corinth, for a lady either to shave her head or to go out with her hair completely in disarray would have reflected very negatively on her. It would literally have been a disgrace. Now, why is this terminology so strong? What did the shaved head mean in Corinth? Temple prostitute. They were the ones that shaved their heads. So if a woman went out with her head shaved, what is everybody going to think? Whoa, right? And Paul is lumping the woman with hair completely disheveled in the same thing, right? So the woman should go out with her hair prepared. Now, what about the guy? This one, I think, comes pretty well into our, into our contemporary culture, you know? Nothing wrong with a good haircut, all right? But... You've all seen, you know, maybe you watch a little TV, see those TV preachers, right? You see that one and you're looking at the guy's hair, you're going, just how much time did he spend in front of a mirror this morning? How much money did that guy spend at the, at the stylist on that hairdo? What's happening? You've totally lost focus on what he's saying. It's very possible, especially for, you know, a man really gets carried away to detract from the more important things that he may be about, right? Again, nothing wrong with a good haircut. I keep reminding myself of that. But it can get carried away. So in the Corinthian situation, at least, how far do you want to import that into our culture is up to you. In the Corinthian situation, at least, for a man to spend too much time on his hair wasn't a good thing. A woman not to spend enough time wasn't a good thing. Right? That's this idea of hair, right? Okay? Very significant, right? Another word, just really quickly, um, it's not used frequently, but it really impacts the text, is the word disgrace or shame. Paul uses that word in this text to talk about the result 
of somebody messing up on this issue. You get, I know it sounds really strange to us. You get the hair thing wrong. It's a disgrace. That really doesn't make sense to me, but I'm not in this culture, right? So, so what can we say the really, the really big issues are? Is it just appearance? Well, it's things about the appearance, <coughs> excuse me, where people are bringing shame to one another. Now let's back up to just one more word in the text. I want to add this, and that's the word glory. Remember how, how he says in the text, a woman's long hair brings her glory? What does the word glory mean? We somehow mistake that word as to be, you know, like the big bright flash when the glory of the Lord filled the temple, right? Well, that was there, and that is what caused the people to say the glory of the Lord. But what does the word glory mean? The word glory means any visible manifestation that reveals the essential character of something. Any visible manifestation that reveals the essential character of something. So for a woman to have well-prepared hair is saying something in the Corinthian text, don't want to bring it into our context, you know, unless, unless it's appropriate. In the Corinthian context, with the values that were present then, a woman's hair was presumed to say an awful lot about her essential character. And if it spoke well of her essential character, it was completely accurate to say that was her glory. It revealed who she was. And if a man's hair, little too much time and effort, little too much gel, well, that said something about you too. That spoke to your character. You might not want it to say that. Again, it's the Corinthian context, right? So what is going on with Corinth? Let's just talk a little bit about the situation that made this issue so big. Why is this hair thing such a big deal there? We've said all along, Paul is addressing the, the problem, the singular problem of a deeply divided church. And what's it divided over? Well, we've seen it was divided over the preachers that they followed. We've seen it was divided over you know, the issue of what kind of meat are you going to eat. Several issues have divided it. Well, he's still doing that. And there is some kind of a divisive issue relative to the hair thing and what's being done with the hair, and it's going a whole lot deeper than just hair, right? Now, again, Corinthian letters, we have the answers. We don't have the questions. We have to recreate the question, right? And the theory, and I have to say it's a theory because we, we can't demonstrate it absolutely, but the theory that a lot of biblical scholars have presented is that in the Corinthian church, there was a group of women who having experienced the freedom in Christ, and we need to remember, there is women in the, fir in the first century, Greco-Roman Empire, you were a second class, they were a second class citizen. There was no two ways about it. There were variations in that theme, but it didn't matter where you were in the Roman Empire. If you were a woman, you were a second class citizen. The only place in the entire empire where a woman truly stood in equal status with a man was the Christian church. That's the only place it happened. Well, you elevate any group of people out of a second-class status to a first-class status, some people in that group are going to misunderstand what that means. Take, for example, and that's human nature. That's not confined to any gender, right? That's human nature. Take what happened when the Gentiles found themselves elevated to the same status as the Jews. How long did it take before some Gentiles started pushing Jews out of the church? Didn't take long. They misunderstood what that meant, right? So the theory that many scholars advance, and I happen to agree with, is that some individual women in the church had misunderstood what their elevated status represented, had what scholars call an over-realized spirituality, 
what Dr. Fee, who's a tremendous scholar on the Corinthian letters, calls an eschatological presence, like they'd already fully arrived. That's the idea. And they saw themselves as superior to anybody else in the church, male or female. It is that specific group that Paul is referring to throughout this entire passage. And the evidence of that, there's actually evidence of that, if you'll turn over just a few pages to chapter, uh, chapter 14. At verse 34, and this is a chapter we'll talk a lot about in a couple weeks. We're just going to touch on it right now. And if you were raised in a background that talked about this authoritative structuring in male-female relationships, this verse of Scripture was a KOA verse. It means you camp there a lot, right? Or somebody camped there a lot, right? Verse 13, chapter 14, rather, verse 34, reads this way. Let the women keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak. But let them subject themselves, just as the law also says. How many have heard that one, right? Right? What's the most important word in that verse? The. Let the women keep silent in the church. Is Paul making a generalized statement about all women? Absolutely not. That word the is a huge word in the Greek language. It means a, it always brings distinction and specificity. Paul has a specific group in mind. He is saying to that group, y'all need to be quiet, sit down. Not all the women in the church, that group right over there. Because they misunderstand the freedom they now have in Christ and the equality they now have in Christ and they're taking it and they're doing destructive things with it. And because they're doing destructive things with it, they have quite literally forgot what their true standing is. A standing of equality. And why are we all equal? Because we all came from the same source. And we're all dependent upon the same Savior. You forget that, and problems are the inevitable result. Right? That's what's going on in Corinth, right? We have a group of people in the church. They happen to be women. They have contributed to the divisions within the church because they've got a misunderstanding of what Christ has done for them. And Paul is simply saying that. Like I said, this passage actually comes down to a very simple point. If you're doing things that bring discredit on the church, if you're doing things that cause divisions in the church, stop. That's the text. That's the point. If you're doing things that cause divisions, stop, right? One last little bit, verses 13 through 16. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray with her head uncovered? And by uncovered, meaning in that shaven status or disheveled status. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's his honor. That long hair, that's excessively dressed, too much mousse, right, hair. It's a dishonor to him. It doesn't reveal his character as it should. If a woman has long hair or really well done, again, that's the Corinthian status. I'm not laying out standards for ladies here. You take care of your hair the way you want to, right? But if a woman has long hair, it's glory to her, reveals her character, right? And then he says in verse 16, if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice. He's not laying out a law. He's not laying down a law here. It's the same as that word tradition at the very beginning. These two words bracket this passage, tradition and practice. Paul is saying, I am talking about what you should be doing, what I strongly recommend you do in the context and in the setting that you are. That you are. And that word nature can be a little bit um, confusing to us because we tend to think of it as laws of nature, like natural law. It actually is the Greek word from which our word physics is, is drawn. right? So it did start talking about natural law. But over the arc of the word's history, it had changed. 
And by the first century, it had changed, primarily as a result of the Stoic philosophers, it had changed in its common usage from what, not, what natural law says to us to what the common understanding of natural law was. It had changed from what natural law taught us to what the commonly held understanding of natural law was, i.e., public opinion. It carried more of the idea of public opinion about the way things were than about what they actually were. What is Paul saying? Even public opinion outside of the church agrees with what I'm saying. So when you boil it all down, when you boil it all down, what is Paul saying? It's really simple. Where there are things that are disruptive to our relationships in the body of Christ, don't do them. In fact, don't do anything that brings discredit to the gospel, even if it's so much as a distraction. Again, I show up next week, I got my hair going right down the middle, nice purple stripe, maybe tipped with some orange, you're going to have a hard time paying attention to what I say because you're going to be focused on that weird thing on my head. It just doesn't make sense. Don't do it, right? Act in a manner that brings glory, which is to say reveals the essential essence of God, his church, your home, yourself. And for the Christian, here's the challenging part. I wish it was simpler than this, but it's not. For the Christian, that means living by two sets of standards. We have to accommodate two sets of standards, right? Obviously, Scripture is our first set of standards. We don't do anything contrary to the clear dictates of Scripture. That's always first. But it also means, you remember that word nature? Common consensus of how things are? It means we have to give place to the common consensus of the population group that we're in. We have to take the general perception of how people see things. We, want our, we don't want our presentation of the gospel to be perceived as weird. Right? They are so off the wall. They do that handle and snake things, right? That's too easy of an example because we don't do it, right? But we do weird stuff like that. It's not attractive to the gospel. We have to navigate, and this is a challenge, we have to navigate life in such a way, both individually and corporately, that we both follow Scripture absolutely and to the greatest measure we can accommodate our societal expectations. That's a challenge. That's a challenge. But there's nothing new to that challenge. Remember how Paul ended the previous chapter? I'll end with this. He said this. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things. Wow, that's a tall order. That is a tall order. Just as I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that, they, here's the gold standard, so that they may be saved. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. And Father, I thank you that, that you spoke your word. And Father, sometimes it's a real challenge for us because you spoke it in this crazy context of Corinth, Lord. And that's so much different than we are, and yet it's a lot like us too. But it reminds us, Lord, that your word does speak into real life. Lord, and as we're just about the challenge of serving you, faithfully obeying you, and, and then at the same time living in a way that speaks to our world, we look to your spirit to guide us, Lord. And we thank you for the encouragement that we have as we do this in one another, in the body which is your church. Our prayer fathers, we found faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.